The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. It is uh, from Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34, as we continue our exposition of the book of Exodus together. Exodus chapter 34, and we'll be considering this evening verses 1 through verse 28. Verses 1 through verse 28. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone, like the first. And I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Uh, Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the clouds, And stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth, nor in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the works of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that the Lord will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out Before you, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Prezavites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars, cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, you are invited, and you are invited, you eat his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, 
from, for in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that opens the womb are mine. All your males, livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruit of uh, of the wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the, uh, offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let sacri- the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until uh, the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenants, the Ten Commandments. This is the Word of God. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our time of considering it this afternoon. Father, we thank you and we praise you for this Word, for this Word of grace and mercy. We thank you, O Father, that you have shown forth your love to your people. Even in the midst of their rebellion, you prove yourselves to be a faithful God. We thank you for this. We trust in this. And we claim, O Lord, this. We pray, Father, that you would be merciful to us this evening. And we plead this same character now, asking that you would bless us and be gracious to us. Teach us by your word. Instruct us that we might live before you in such a way that brings honor to your name. And it shows, Lord, the grace of Christ to those who are still unbelieving in this world. We ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen. Well, the saying has been noted many times and in many places that the night is often darkest just before the dawn. And such is the case in this particular section of the book of Exodus. This is, without a doubt, beginning in chapter 32, one of the darkest moments, not only really in the history of the people of Israel as it's recorded for us in the book of Exodus, but actually in the history of the people of Israel considered throughout all of the Old Covenant revelation. Uh, Chapter 32 marks a moment of horrific spiritual disaster in the life of the nation. It was in that time, in chapter 32, and the events that are recorded there, that we see that most horrific irony which occurred with the people as they were gathered at the bottom of Mount Sinai while Moses was up upon the mountain 
uh, receiving the revelation of God, particularly receiving the revelation and the instructions concerning the building of the tabernacle. Remember, the tabernacle was the place where God had deigned to come and to establish a location in which He could dwell in the midst of His people. A place where He could be with His people and they could be with Him. And it's in the context of the Lord providing the instructions for the building of such a place that the people of Israel have rebelled against the Lord in the most hideous manner conceivable. Even while He shows grace upon grace to them, they in effect spit in the face of His grace and rebel against Him with what many have called an act of spiritual adultery. Dr. Michael Morales, I think Pastor Aachen already noted this, but it's worth remembering notes that this episode in the life of the nation of Israel could be analogous to a bride committing adultery against her spouse on the night of their wedding. It was a horrific moment. And yet, the night is often darkest just before the dawn. That horrific moment of sin brought about many undesirable results for the people of Israel. You see it even in chapter 33. The Lord tells Moses to part and and go from here and take the people away. He even says, go ahead and take the promised land. I'll send my angel before you, but I will not dwell in your midst. In effect, he's saying, get out of my presence. Get out of my sight. You rebellious stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. But by God's grace, and through the mediation of the intercessor, the prophet Moses, already in chapter 33, already in the midst of this horrific event, God's grace can be seen. In chapter 33, you begin to see, if you will, the, the the beginnings of the sun cresting over the horizon line. And you begin to see that God is going to be gracious and merciful to His people. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 34 and look at the text that we just read, we see that really the broad daylight of gospel truth is being revealed to us here in chapter 34. Because it's here in chapter 34 that the Lord does not come against the people in judgment, but instead, through the mediation of Moses, that Pastor Aachen already instructed us about last week in chapter 33, the Lord agrees to come and to repair the damage and to bridge the divide that was caused between himself and his people in their great act of spiritual rebellion. He comes here and he shows forth to us some glorious truths. Primarily, what Exodus chapter 34 tells us is it tells us about the gracious character of the Lord God of Israel. Really, we could summarize the teaching of the entire chapter this way. It's a simple truth, but it's an important truth, and it's one that we need to take care to embed on our hearts and upon our minds, even this evening as we consider this particular text. The truth is simply this, that the foundation of the Christian's hope and the foundation of the people of Israel's hope at this time was only and always in the character of the Lord God of Israel. 
that there is nothing here that would indicate that the people of Israel were in any way appealing to the Lord God Almighty. The only thing that stands between the Lord and the destruction of His people is His gracious character and His love and compassion towards sinners. That's a simple truth. But it is, in a very real sense, the roots not only of the grace of God that we see demonstrated in this passage, but it is the root and the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we rejoice in even now. I want to consider this text then under two simple headings. First, as we look at verses 1 through 9, we're just going to simply see the Lord coming and proclaiming his character. We're going to see there that God's character is proclaimed to Moses and through Moses to us and the people. And then, as we continue through the chapter, we'll see in verses 10 through 28 that God not only has proclaimed his gracious character, but now he puts his money where his mouth is, if you will, and he demonstrates his gracious character as he renews his covenant, which has been broken by his sinful people. And as we consider these two simple headings, we will see God's grace displayed before us, and we'll see the root of God's goodness towards his people is not in anything that we have done, but it is indeed in who he is as a gracious and a merciful God. Let's begin to consider then first God's character as it is proclaimed in verses 1 and 9. As the chapter begins, we see here the, the Lord instructing Moses. And you'll note several things about this particular portion of the chapter. I hope you note immediately that many of the things that we see here already in the first four verses or so remind us greatly of what we've heard already. Of course, the Lord tells Moses to go and cut for himself two tablets of stone like the first. If you remember, Moses has broken those tablets whenever he came down and saw what Israel had done. And now he is called to cut out stones for himself, two tablets like the ones that he had before, and bring them with him and to go, as we see in verse 2, to Mount Sinai. Again, very similar to what we've seen already, the Lord is going to meet with his servant Moses and he's going to meet with him in the same location that he met him the first time at Mount Sinai. You note also that Moses is again to make sure that no one comes upon the mountain. Certainly they don't come to the top of the mountain, but even the flocks and the herds and and no people, that they would be on the opposite side from the mountain where they could look upon the events that are going to take place upon the mountain. The Lord is zealous that the holiness of the mountain be protected. Not only that, but he's zealous, I think, and, and, and compassionate that no one would see the glory of the Lord in the current broken state of the covenant and be struck down. But again, it's similar to what we've seen back in places like Exodus chapter 19 and, and 24. We see repetition here, and that's important. But then we see the preparation for that proclamation ended, and We see in verses 4 and 5, the event begins. Moses goes up, he he does what the Lord has told him to do, and he comes upon the mountain. And when he gets upon the mountain, the Lord descends in a cloud and stood with him there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
Now remember, what is happening at this point is fulfillment of what Moses has requested back in Exodus chapter 33. He had asked the Lord to come and to meet with him. Indeed, he had asked the Lord to show him his ways, to show him his glory. And the Lord, as you remember, instructs Moses saying that it's not possible for him to see his face, but he does tell him that he will come and show some measure of his glory to Moses as he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And that promise, that agreement that they had made there in chapter 33 now comes to pass. The Lord comes and he descends again in that glory cloud like we've seen earlier in the book onto the Mount of Meeting. Verse 6 tells us what takes place next. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the, and, and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. The Lord comes in a display of his glory from the glory cloud. He descends and he proceeds to make something of a parade before the prophet, doesn't he? He proceeds before him and as he passes before him, he makes the proclamation, the Lord, the Lord. And then he begins to exegete, if you will, his own character. Now, commentators point out that this first statement he makes, the Lord, the Lord, this carries with it a reminder of who God is. Not only Yahweh, the God of the covenant, this is the covenant name, the name which signifies God's covenant commitments towards his people, but it also tells us something about his nature, doesn't it? It tells us that he is the God who is uh, eternal, and uh, he is a God who is uh, self-existent. He is the God who is. He is the only God. He is the Lord. And he comes proclaiming that, but then he begins to, as I mentioned earlier, exegete particular attributes. He notes here two really fundamental attributes. We could break this down in a great deal of detail, but for the sake of of time, we'll just consider it really in two parts. We see on the one hand the Lord's grace and mercy, and we see on the other hand the Lord's justice and his holiness. First, he begins with the grace and the mercy. No doubt that would have been good news to Moses. If you consider where the people are, you consider where Moses is, there's no reason you would have imagined that the Lord would begin to reveal himself by placing an emphasis on his grace. Why would he? The people have been horrible to him. They've constantly kicked against the goads throughout the entire story of the Exodus, and and they've just got done committing the most horrific act of rebellion thus far. And yet, the Lord comes, and he begins to explain himself, to reveal himself, by putting a stress on his grace and his mercy. Even here we see the character of God, don't we? He doesn't come first with a thundering declaration of his justice. But he comes speaking gently to his rebellious people. He speaks of his grace. He speaks of a number of facets of his grace. You note it here. 
first he tells Moses that he is a, he's a patient God. He's slow to anger. He's one who is willing to abide much sin in patience. He tells him he's abounding in steadfast love. The word here, hesed, which we've spoken about much when we studied the book of Ruth together. This idea of steadfast, covenantally faithful love and commitment. All of these facets are wrapped up together here with this language. He never forgets his people. He tells us something of the extent of his grace that extends for thousands, or as some would translate it, to a thousand generations. The Lord shows his grace towards his people. And he tells us, last of all, that he is a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The Lord speaks gently to his rebellious and sinful people. And yet, he also proclaims his justice. We see that beginning in the latter half of verse 7. Indeed, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives sin, transgression, and iniquity. But he is a God who will by no means clear the guilty. You note that he is a God who will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. Now, I think for us living today in the culture we live in, in the context we live in, I think the dichotomy of these two chief emphases that we see God proclaiming to his people, I think these can be very difficult for us to wrap our minds around. I don't know about you, but I've encountered a lot of people in my life who want to emphasize one of these or the other. I've met a lot of people in Reformed churches who talk a lot about God's judgment. And they're very excited for the day when God is going to come and smite his enemies, which incidentally happen to typically be their enemies. But sometimes it can be a little light on God's grace. On the other hand, we can meet lots of people, not just Reformed people, not just Evangelical people, but people out in the world, who, who the first thing you hear them if they believe anything about God is that God is love, God is grace, God is a God who will forgive. God just wants us to be happy. And I want you to see, friends, that these two things which we often see presented in really contradiction to one another are not in contradiction to one another in God. You see, God is not a God who emphasizes grace to the extent that Justice is lacking. God's love doesn't denigrate in any way his holiness or his justice. And on the other hand, God is not a God whose justice turns to cruelty. He is a God of mercy and a God of love. And these two aspects of his character are here highlighted for us in such a way that I think are puzzling really to many. Perhaps they're puzzling to you. One of the fascinating things about the revelation of God's character that happens here in Exodus 34 is just how important it is to the rest of the Old Testament's revelation of God. It's amazing how often these verses are either quoted or appealed to. And sometimes when they're quoted and appealed to, they highlight just the seeming contradiction that I'm pointing out now. Think with me for a moment 
of the prophet Jonah. You'll remember Jonah is that reluctant prophet of the Lord. You'll remember that in Jonah 4, Jonah has really began to throw himself a pity party. And the reason he's doing that is simply because God has decided to spare the Ninevites. He thought he was in for a good show. The enemies of Israel are going to be crushed. They're going to be killed. They're going to be annihilated. And Jonah was, he was ready to sign up for that, but he was a little suspicious the whole time. Indeed, I think that's why he didn't want to go to begin with. Because he knew what kind of God Yahweh was. And as he complains in Jonah chapter 4, he, he actually says there in verse 2, as he complains, I knew that you were a God, a, or rather you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He's taking upon his lips the language of our passage. And he's saying, well, hey, the reason I didn't want to come is because I knew that you're a gracious God. And if if I preach to these people, and it sure will, and you're a gracious God, so it probably is, you're going to spare them. And I, I didn't really sign up for that. And yet, interestingly, we can turn from Jonah just a few pages in our Bible to the first chapter of the book of Nahum. Nahum deals with Nineveh as well, but from a slightly different angle. It's an oracle of destruction against Nineveh. And as Nahum begins his prophecy in verse 3 of the book, he says this, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. How do you reconcile these two facets of God's character? Here he is showing mercy on the one hand at one point to the Ninevites, and then coming against them in justice and in judgment. It's an interesting question, isn't it? You can imagine that perhaps Moses even wrestled with this some as he struggled with what the Lord was telling him here in the chapter. But I'm going to leave you with that question for just a few moments. And we're going to move on and see what else takes place in the rest of this section of the text. You see what Moses does with the revelation of God's nature, his attributes here. Verse 8 tells us that Moses, he quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Uh, we would imagine that that's the appropriate response, isn't it? As God comes, uh, not just with His glory and a visible display of His majesty and His holiness in the glory cloud, but also as He proclaims the truth about who He is to Moses, that drives Moses to worship the Lord. He hits the dirt and worships. And then in verse 9, he does something interesting. He begins to intercede again, doesn't he? Look at what he says. If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. Now notice what Moses did. First, he, he 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 clung to what the Lord had told him earlier 
in chapter 33 that he had found favor in the sight of the Lord. He is, of course, here a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a mediator for the people in interceding between them and God. He is the only thing standing between the people of Israel and utter destruction at this point. And he claims that favor that he has with God. If I found favor with you, have mercy upon them. But he also does something else. He appeals, you notice there, to the character of God which God has just revealed unto him. Listen to the language he uses. (laughs) He says, it's a stiff-necked people. He grants that. There's nothing in us that would cause you to want to save us. But he quickly adds, pardon our iniquity and our sin. We could probably paraphrase it something like this. Lord, you have just shown me who you are. You have just shown me that you are a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who desires to pardon transgression and iniquity and sin. And what Moses does here is he simply clings to the revelation that God has just given to him. And he says, Lord, if you are the kind of God that you say you are, pardon your people. Have mercy upon us. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. Forgive us and pardon us. Friend, I think that there's something we can learn there. We can learn from the pleas of Moses at this point. Friend, I hope you do this in prayer. I I hope you do what Moses just did. I hope you see what God has told you about himself and his word and you take hold of that and you cling to that and you pray according to that. I hope you see his grace, his mercy revealed to you and that's how you speak to him. When you're in a difficult situation, Lord, I know that you are a God who cares for your people. It may not look like it right now, but you have told me you are. Lord, have mercy. Friends, this is a a paradigm, really, for how we should interact with the Lord. Claim his character. Hold on to who he has revealed himself to be. Pray it back to him. And seek his favor through it. Not only is that a biblically revealed way of interacting with the Lord, complaining, if you will, wrestling, As the Puritans like to use that language for prayer, wrestling with God. Not only is it a biblically ordained way, but it's also, as we see in the rest of our chapter, it's a fruitful and oftentimes a successful way. Because the Lord answers the pleas of Moses immediately here, doesn't he? Look at what happens in verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant before All your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do. Well, the Lord answered Moses' prayer here, didn't he? He was successful in his intercession. The Lord shows grace to Israel. And it's at this point in the chapter that we transition from seeing God proclaiming his character to his people 
to seeing, I hope very briefly, God demonstrating his character to his people. The rest of this chapter is taken up with what, in effect, is really several restatements of key aspects of the covenant which God has already given earlier in the book. I'm sure you notice that. There are several things that highlight that for us. He, he tells the people of Israel that they are to be careful once they enter into the land that they don't commit a violation against the commandment not to worship another god or not to make a graven image. He tells them about the liturgical calendar which he has already instituted. He encourages them to keep it and he reiterates it. He even tells them some rather strange things that we've heard before, such as you shouldn't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. But the key takeaway that we should have after reading all of those various aspects of the commandments that God gives here is that God is doing again what He has done before. You see, the Lord, from the perspective of verse 10 of Exodus 34, sees the covenant that He has made as broken. The people of God have rebelled against him before things even really got into effect. And he sees the need here, not just to renew. You see, it doesn't say here, remaking the covenant, but it actually says making the covenant. There was a division between God and the people, and in his grace and in his mercy, in response to the pleadings of Moses, the intercessor, now God is coming and he is reinstating the same covenantal arrangement that he had made before with his people before they had sinned against him in chapter 32. He proclaims his gracious character. He demonstrates it. He tells us that he's gracious and then he shows us that he's gracious. It's a powerful thing that happens here. Perhaps difficult to see, but powerful. He makes some wonderful promises here, doesn't he? He says he's going to make a covenant, yes. He says, before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth. What he's saying here is I'm going to do things that you can't even imagine. I am going to do miracles. I am going to work wonders in your presence that no nation has ever seen, no person has ever dreamt of. I am going to bless you in such a way that you can't imagine. Even though you've just spurned me and sought to cast me off. He's proclaimed his grace. He demonstrates his grace. It's glorious, really. The grace of God shown forth to us here in this chapter. And I think that as we consider the the marvelous grace of God as it's demonstrated for the people of Israel here as he comes and he communicates with them on the top of Mount Sinai, I think we're forced really to cast our minds forward to that ultimate revelation of the grace and the mercy of our Lord. You see, the character of God, the gracious character of God, is the root of of the hope that the people of Israel have at this point in their history. They have realized that they are sinners, and if it's up to them, they will not last long in the arrangement that God has made with them. And brothers and sisters, I I think that even today, any of us who knows our heart knows that that's true of us too. 
You see, the roots, not only of Israel's hope, but of our hope and of the hope of any sinner who has ever lived upon this world or ever will live upon this earth, is simply the grace and the goodness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which finds its foundation and its rootedness here in the gracious character of our God. Return to that question I asked you earlier. How do you reconcile a God who is on the one hand merciful and a God who is on the other hand completely just? Well, perhaps if we only had Exodus chapter 34, we would be left wondering about that even this evening as we left. But I would suggest that you cast your mountain, cast your mountain, probably shouldn't do that, probably can't do that, cast your mind forward to another mountain, cast your mind forward to Mount Calvary, where we see the justice of God in all of its immensity and all of its horrific graphic horribleness falling upon the Lord Jesus Christ see the justice of God nail his only begotten son to a cross we see the justice but we know that the purpose of that demonstration of justice was to be a proclamation of grace to the people of God. It's there that we see the God of grace and the God of justice reconciled, as it were, in the person and the work of our Savior on the cross. That's how we understand that a just God can be gracious to the people of Israel, but to people like us. Friends, this is our hope, and this was their hope. And it's rooted in the character, the gracious and the just character of the Lord God of Israel, our God the God who created the heavens and the earth, and the God who sent our Savior to become sin, even though he knew no sin, for our sake that we might in him become the righteousness of God. Friends, as we leave this place, let us leave with a doxology upon our lips. Let us cry with Moses, no doubt in his heart as he heard the proclamations of God as he stood there on the mountain. You notice again for 40 days and 40 nights, just like he did the first time, seeing God put the pieces of what people had broken back together. Let us leave crying out in thankfulness to our Lord that he is a God who proclaims his gracious character to us and a God who demonstrates his gracious character to us, most importantly, in our Savior. And let us go forth then, meditating upon the reality that his character is the foundation of our hope. It's the root of our gospel. It's the basis of our prayers. And it's the model for our obedience.
Let us seek to cultivate these things. Let us seek to meditate upon these things for the glory of God, for the good of his people, and the extension of his kingdom. May it be. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to a God who has revealed himself to be a gracious God. We do not come to a God who is vengeful without measure, but we come to a God of inexhaustible grace and love for sinners. We thank you, O Lord, that you have shown us mercy in the Savior. And we pray even this evening that we would be struck with a deeper thankfulness to you and a deeper willingness and desire to live in conformity with your word and an imitation of your glorious character. Let that be true of every one of us here this evening, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.